0: It was much more interesting than ours. It was Ron Wyden versus Peter DeFazio. And it was a bloodbath.
1: Yeah, it really did show the increasing conservatism of the Republican Party. I mean, we had seen a lot of hints in previous elections.
2: You know, what do people pay for things like gas and bread and milk and all those things? And um, everybody could answer the question but Ron Wyden.
3: Well, I was driving him the next day to some meeting and he was clearly worried about it, but I hadn't seen it. So I didn't know what he was talking about. And he was kind of asking me, do you think it's going to be a big problem? And I'm sort of downplaying it because I didn't want him A, nervous for the thing we were about to go to and B, I, I didn't think it would be that big of a deal because we didn't know how they were going to portray it.
4: Uh, suddenly the national press is is looking at it and, um, and we're, we're under the spotlight, um, even the Klieg lights, uh, because if anything goes wrong, huh, I'm running for re-election in 1996. I could well have a disaster on my hands, and, well, it was a short but <laughs> but uh, fun uh, time as a Secretary of State, but all things must pass.
5: Thanks to the resignation of U.S. Senator Bob Packwood, Oregon would have an open U.S. Senate seat for the first time since 1968. And for the first time in state history, they would hold a special election to fill it. For elected officials across Oregon, it provided a unique opportunity to run for one of the most coveted positions in U.S. politics. For Oregon Secretary of State Phil Keesling, it meant an opportunity to accomplish another milestone, the first federal election held entirely vote by mail. And he could prove that an all-mail election works. This is Kevin Curry, and in this second episode of the first season, we revisit the moment that candidates and campaigns scrambled, a race was held over Thanksgiving, and a primary election reveals the changing dynamics of one party and the unity of another. Bob Packwood's resignation provided an opportunity that Oregon's prominent politicians didn't expect. It forced them to change course suddenly or to fast-track a decision they thought they had more time to make. Brian Klem was the campaign manager for Wyden for Congress, the re-election campaign for Ron Wyden. Being in a safe seat like Oregon's 3rd Congressional District meant they could hire someone like him, a 23-year-old barely out of college.
3: We didn't even have an opponent yet. It was, was, you know, the uh, September of 95, so filing day for the 96 election, which was when you would be signing up to run for either Senate or House, was not till the next March. So our plan was he runs for Cong- the House again. We'll see who runs against him. But as usual, it'll be you know nobody with a chance. And then I'll just, you know, run the campaign, which meant support other Democrats and, you know, go to the county party meetings and the third CD and stuff like that. That was the plan. And, and then boom, suddenly I get called by the the, I think it was the chief of staff or the district director and said, Hey, um, Ron's going to run. And, uh, so like, we need you to talk to a radio station about our kickoff event at the Hollywood senior center, you know, this Saturday. And I've never done any interviews with the radio for him before he did his own radio interviews, but they wanted someone to play coy and be able to act like I didn't know what his announcement was going to be. And so I get on, you know, KXL and Just, hey, come to the Hollywood Senior Center Saturday and find out. And they're like, well, what's he going to do? I don't know. We'll find out.
5: (laughs) On the Republican side, Gordon Smith was charting a path toward higher office. He'd been working for a couple of years with his team, including Chief of Staff Dan Levy and Lori Hardwick, who ran the operations for the Oregon Senate President's Office. He was setting himself up for the right opportunity.
0: Gordon grew up. His father served in the Eisenhower administration, and Gordon spent a fair amount of time in Washington, D.C. as a young person. Uh, I think he revered uh, the Senate as an institution and some of the individuals, the giants of American political history of either party that had served in the U.S. Senate. He was interested in foreign policy, um, which you really don't campaign on. But I just think he had a a strong interest in in the U.S. Senate rather than serving in the Congress, which of course at that point was in the minority. Um, he didn't know that the Republicans in 1994 were going to sweep the Congress and take control.
2: As I recall, it was maybe right away that very day. Uh, he knew that he wanted to run for higher office at that, at that point already. Um, so when Packwood resigned, there was a discussion about, should I run? Should I not run? What would be the downsides, upsides, all those kind of things. I I remember that he, um, you know, called his wife. I know that he talked to people across the state um, pretty quickly. And he just said, I guess today's the day we got to go.
0: So, you know, Gordon and I had talked for a couple years about his electoral path and interest in public service. He was very interested in serving in the U.S. Senate. Um, Governor was obviously an option. Um, but that just didn't interest him as much, serving as governor as serving in the U.S. Senate. Um, and the seat for Congress became open in the second congressional district when Bob Smith retired. And I think Gordon could have easily won that congressional seat, Smith replacing Smith. Um, and, uh, and he chose to take a pass on that. Um, so he was prepared to serve in the state Senate for quite a while, Um, and then maybe look at the U.S. Senate should it become available.
2: You know, you figure at that point, you know, in politics, opportunity is everything. And you figure at that point that if you don't decide, somebody else will jump in. And in politics, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, especially in politics. So um, I think it had, I think in his mind, he had to make a quick decision. And I think he did that. And maybe that very day even went to the press room and said, I'm running.
5: While everyone knew there would be a special election, what they didn't know is how it would be conducted. During the 1995 legislative session, Secretary of State Phil Kiesling, with the support of Oregon's county clerks, had come as close as possible to making vote-by-mail the method for all elections in Oregon. A midsummer veto from Democratic Governor John Kitzhaber ended that effort. Packwood's resignation and the need for a special election gave Kiesling a high-profile opportunity to show the entire nation that vote-by-mail works. It would be the only election going on, and that would put it in the spotlight. Oregon voters had fairly recently changed the way that a vacant U.S. Senate seat is filled. Most states allowed the governor to make an appointment, which is what Oregon did until 1986. That year, the democratically-controlled Oregon legislature, referred a constitutional amendment to voters to change it to a special election. It was approved handily.
4: Yeah, Oregon, uh, every state uh, has laws that have to deal with vacancies in the U.S. Senate. It's an interesting little corner of election law. House of Representative vacancies, if they occur with enough advanced time, you have to have a special election. But Senate is up to the states. And... A lot of states, maybe two dozen or so, appoint people to a vacancy. And some of the states don't even require an appointment of the same political party. So you can have a Democrat vacate office, die, leave, whatever reason, and suddenly someone appoints a Republican to fill the place. The governor may be a Republican, appoints a Republican, or vice versa. Other states at least require the same party. But then there are states that require a special election like Oregon. And uh, so we treat vacancies um, the same way that we treat a congressional vacancy.
5: Now, in 1995, Phil Kiesling got to choose how to administer that election. Of course, there were practical implications to such a decision in addition to the political. Uh,
4: Because of permanent absentee voting and the efforts of both political parties to promote the practice to get out the vote, most people were probably already gonna vote by mail anyway. So all we did, in effect, was just said, well, let's just mail to everybody and scrap the application process. Let's not go through the chaos of having people, as the election gets closer and closer, be flooding their election offices with these absentee ballot applications. And um, uh, that was one of the reasons all the clerks were for this. They said, this is, this is crazy. We're running two elections at the same time. Most of the people are going to vote uh, by mail, and yet we're required to set up all these polling places and no one's coming to them. Or there's vast stretches of time where no one shows up. Uh, So let's rationalize the system and send everybody their ballot.
5: The calendar was another factor in this special election. If Oregon Governor John Kitzhaber had set the general election within 90 days of Packwood's official October 1 resignation, then each state party would nominate its candidate at a convention. If it was further out than 90 days, Oregon would hold a primary.
4: The mechanics were that you have to hold it within so many days of the vacancy happening. And so we looked at the calendar and the way that worked. And it was a little awkward because you got to give people enough advance time to get their ballots overseas. Military voters, submarine Mm -hmm. voters. Um, So you can't hold it too quickly after September. Then you got into the Christmas holidays. Issue. So the, the way it worked out is the first round uh, mid December, and then the second round was January, uh, end of January. And again, you got to build in those forty five days, um, and you got to get the ballots out. You know, twenty. Uh, I think it was back then. It was about twenty one days prior to the election. You get them out to all active registered voters, the voters that the county election officials have good reason to believe are living at the address where the the record matches to. A lot of voters, uh, there's reason to believe they've moved, and so they're put on an inactive list, mailed to those voters, the ballots will come back. In practically all cases, it's a waste of money, and, and, it, and it also just more ballots out there than you need to have. But those are the mechanics of it. And so... You had people have to declare for office, organize their campaigns as soon as the vacancy uh, uh, occurs. There's a filing deadline. You've got to build that in to give people a chance to file for the office. I remember back then there was a button uh, that uh, many of us wore. I'm not running for U.S. Senate uh, because a lot of people were thinking about it. Okay, Suddenly it's a, you know, a, a vacancy for a prize seat.
5: In addition to an all-male election... The shortened time frame for the primary election and the tight turnaround to the general had an impact on the race.
3: The timeline was super compressed. I mean, usually you would think a primary, you file Labor Day, you know, maybe at the earliest. um, And then it's the next May. So you got eight, nine months. Well, we were told, okay, this is going to be vote by mail, first of all. And it's and election day, I think, was the very beginning of December, if I remember right. And so it was, you know, it was two months or less.
0: First week in December, um, it was only about, you know, from the time the campaigns were announced, we had about six to eight weeks for a campaign.
3: And it was a special election, which meant you could run without giving up your seat. So that invited every member of Congress from Oregon who was a Democrat, like, you know, maybe I gotta take a shot at this. And so, just like us. And so we started looking at, I think it was Elizabeth first probably at the time,
4: and and uh, DeFazio, Wyden. They were already having to do that. Uh, you know, 1984, maybe 3 or 5% of the ballots cast came in via mailed-out ballots. We called them absentees at the time, but when you make it no excuse, no reason to call them absentee ballots, it's confusing. By 1994, you're looking at close to, I think if I remember the statistics right, close to 40%. Of people voting this way, and it's looking to be even more in in '96, and um, uh, so it's clearly something that voters are preferring. So campaigns are already having to adjust; they're already having to figure out who's voting very early and and getting messages to them. And but
0: it was a it it, it was a big deal to have the vote by um, mail. Although we just kind of accepted it, we didn't lobby for it or against it. Um, we just weren't worried about the form of the election. At the end of the day, you got to get more votes than the other candidates. So,
5: An early poll, taken before the filing deadline, showed Ron Wyden leading on the Democratic side and longtime Republican elected official and current superintendent of public instruction, Norma Paulus, leading on the GOP side. The poll showed Wyden leading any of the four likely Republican candidates, while Paulus led all of the Democratic candidates except for Wyden. Head-to-head, it was Wyden 40% to Paulus at 34%. As it turned out, the Democratic primary race shaped up quickly as a two-candidate affair, Ron Wyden versus Peter DeFazio. Other prominent Democrats, like Congresswoman Elizabeth Furse, Governor Barbara Roberts, and Bend businessman Harry Lonsdale, took a look at running, but decided to pass. While there were similarities between the candidates... Both were long-serving, popular members of the U.S. Congress. There were differences. Still, the popularity of both within the Oregon Democratic Party, and especially among activists and young staffers, created a unique situation.
3: You know, I have no staff. We, we have no signs made that say "Widen for Senate. So we went straight to the printer and got a bunch of signs made so the kickoff party would look correct. And, uh, and then we had to go start hiring. But we're competing against Peter DeFazio, who is a beloved... Congressman for a lot of people my age, which are the primary campaign staffer age at that time, are the twenty somethings, and he was you know grabbing people up left and right because he had all these people that like Carmen For and Curtis Robinhold and Duke Shepard who loved him and had worked for him when they went to the U of O, and so now he's got half of them hired already, and I'm supposed to try and find people, and so I went to my network from my days in the student government world at OSU and the other people I knew around the state to just try and get who I could. And I get to the point where I'm like showing him polling and telling him about our war chest compared to DeFazio's war chest. And I said, yeah, you could have a job for like four weeks but we're gonna win and then you're gonna not have a job. So do you want a career or do you want a a job? And so I got a few that way. And so we staffed up and uh, brought in a campaign manager that had just won a race in I think Texas and then another one in Virginia named Emily. And she came in to run the primary. So then I got moved down to be the deputy uh, campaign manager.
5: On the GOP side, it looked like things might get a little more crowded. In the end, though, it really came down to a two-person race, and the differences between the candidates illustrated a growing shift within the Republican Party, both in Oregon and nationally.
0: I think we were the first. Uh, very quickly thereafter, Norma um, Paulus announced, Jack Roberts announced, um who was labor commissioner, had been elected labor commissioner in 1994. Uh, State Senator Jim Bunn talked about running, but never did. Um, And then a couple other people uh, ran or announced on the Republican side, including uh, a gentleman who's now serving in the state Senate named Brian Boquist. Uh,
2: You know, Norma Paulus uh, was in the primary and she was the, or, Maybe she thought she would have been the heir apparent, right? Um, but Gordon quickly, uh, he had for a couple of years, you know, been working and uh, talking to people across the state. People were pretty impressed with who he was, where he came from, all those kind of things. And we were able to quickly assemble a finance committee of, you know, pretty major players across the state, including like Carolyn Chambers, Bill McCormick, Butch Swindells, you know, and so pretty quickly. The establishment business leaders coalesced uh, behind Gordon. And um, so it was Gordon, Norma, and Jack Roberts, as I recall. Um, The establishment and business leaders coalesced behind Gordon, making it pretty hard for Norma. And I think she was pretty mad about that, right? Uh, Making it pretty hard for her in that effort.
5: Longtime Oregon political reporter Jeff Mapes covered the race for the Oregonian. Those were the
1: three that we certainly paid the most attention to. I think there were one or two other people on the ballot. And and there were more who talked about running it first. I mean, a lot of people, like I said, sort of floated their names. And um, and I just, I can't even remember all of them. But when it came down to it, those were the three. I'm sure when he started out the primary, I mean, maybe Dan Levy can correct me. I'm sure he was worried about Norma Paulus. I mean, sh- she was probably better known than he was at that starting out in the primary.
0: Um, our our biggest um, opponent in that was Norma Paulus. And, you know, she was, uh, you know, elected three or four times statewide, secretary of state, superintendent of public instruction. She'd lost for governor in 1986 to Neil Goldschmidt. Very well regarded. Um, but it... Kind of felt like her time had passed um, in the electoral process and within the party, and so and Gordon was the younger candidate, kind of of the future, both by age and by philosophy. Um, and Gordon was just coming off a pretty successful legislative session, um, serving in the state senate as Senate President, and so that's what I remember most is the dynamic between Paulus and Smith. Uh, old guard, new guard.
1: Yeah, it really did show the increasing conservatism of the Republican Party. I mean, we had seen a lot of hints in previous elections. In 1986, when Bob Packwood ran for reelection, and bear in mind this is before his 1992 bruiser with a coin. but 1986, you know, he seemed still uh, very politically strong in the state. And um, uh, a guy named Joe Lutz, a Baptist minister, ran against him in the Republican primary and and did pretty well. Uh, I want to say he ended up getting around 40% of the vote, maybe a little higher. Uh, Certainly, Packwood took that race very seriously, spent a lot of money on it, ran some pretty tough hit ads against uh, Joe Lutz. And in fact, out of Lutz's candidacy... Came the Oregon Citizens Alliance. That was really formed by followers. He had uh, kind of energized uh, Lon Maybon, who headed the Oregon Citizens Alliance, w- had worked on Lutz's campaign, and and then of course OCA members ended up taking over the Oregon Republican Party. Had one of their own as as chairman, um, and then of course the OCA ran uh, that insurgent third-party candidate, Al Mobley, in the 1990 governor's race that arguably could have cost Dave Frommeyer that election. And so we were just seeing uh, an increasing move to sort of drive moderates out of the party, and it really happened at the at the primary level in many ways or, or started to, to happen there. We saw it a lot in legislative races where uh, there were some... Uh, pretty well-known moderates were defeated by more
0: conservative challengers. uh. Well, at the time, there was an organization called the Oregon Citizens Alliance, which uh, was most noted for sponsoring anti-gay rights measures, um, particularly one in 1992, which Gordon, as a candidate for the state Senate in conservative Eastern Oregon Pendleton, actually came out against he was opposed to measure 92 the the gay, the gay rights uh measure which went down in defeat um but they were very active and they were in the end um supportive of gordon opposed to uh paulus it wasn't an endorsement that gordon sought uh but it was an en- an endorsement that he nonetheless received
1: you know i mean there were a couple things that happened during the primary one was that Smith did accept the Oregon Citizens Alliance endorsement and and so that certainly established his bona fides with conservatives and and you know once again on the social issues uh, he came off as pretty conservative uh, in that primary
0: by her being a very liberal Republican it kind of simplistically made Gordon the more conservative Republican which of course he was but it 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 exaggerated, I think, the difference and it exaggerated um, the right-left dynamic, the pro-choice, pro-life dynamic that exists in the Republican Party at that time. And I think kind of unfairly, in some respects, pushed Gordon farther to the right than he actually was in reality, uh, particularly in temperament.
2: The other thing about the primary election, at least from my side, was, you know, Gordon knew that he... Had decided that he would put his own money in to give himself a jump start, you know, ahead of the game, and he did that, and that was really helpful to our effort. That didn't mean that we didn't need to raise money, but it just meant we knew that the time frame was so short that it would give him a, an advantage,
0: which in a very sh- is good any time for a lot of candidates, but in a short election like this, became even more valuable. So we were able to be on TV uh, and have a full campaign going within a matter of a couple weeks um, from starting the campaign. Because we started out behind in, in name ID, but because Gordon could, could invest his own money in that campaign, we were able to get a, a faster start than, than Mrs. Paulus.
5: When close watchers of Oregon politics remember this primary, the Democratic race is the one that stands out. Two popular Democratic members of Congress who finally have their shot at the U.S. Senate without having to sacrifice their existing seats.
1: And that was definitely a more hard-fought race. Uh, There was, uh, at least on DeFazia's part, I think there was some advertising that kind of took on widen. I mean, both both candidates were able to do a lot of uh, TV
3: advertising. And so, you know, we just tried to keep it civil, Um, but it did get to the point where they started bashing on each other a little bit in the advertising. And DeFazio had a hell of a commercial. It was like him driving around in his Dodge Dart. And I think it was like on the road with Peter DeFazio. And at the end, he gets out of his car and he looks over and there's a limousine next to him with a Ron Wyden sticker on it for limousine liberal. I mean, it was it was pretty clever. Low budget, but had that Oregon, you know, knack to it. So he starts picking up some momentum and, uh, you know, he was way underfunded. His population base was not nearly as large of Democrats, You know, third CD and fourth CD are the same numbers, but huge, huge amount greater Democrats in Multnomah County than there was in Coos and Douglas and, and Curry. You know, Lane was the only one where he had a base for that primary. And so we had a natural advantage, but he was one hell of an opponent. And, and I think they had sparred over the years on who might run for the Senate someday, but no one really ever thought it was going to actually happen. And here it was happening. So... Not not easy on those of us who liked them both.
0: Ron running, you know, as the Portland guy, Uh, Peter is more of the populist. My recollection is his ads featured him driving kind of a beat up old Dodge Dart, kind of had this populist vibe that was quite clever. Um, I think most people thought DeFazio probably ran the better campaign. But Wyden had the advantage of money. He had the advantage of coming from Portland. And it was a classic, uh, uh,
1: maybe sort of democratic primary uh, battle in that DeFazio ran more to the left and Wyden, uh, I think, was trying to run a little bit more to the center of the party. I mean, their voting record in Congress was not hugely different. You know, interestingly, one of the big issues in the race was international trade. And Wyden had always been uh, kind of a free trader uh, a supporter of uh, trade treaties. At that point, uh, they would have had the vote on NAFTA, which Wyden supported, and uh, DeFazio didn't. You know, DeFazio had always been very uh, critical of free trade. I mean, very much in the traditional union view of, you know, wanting to set up high trade barriers. I mean, it's so funny how that issue has changed with since Trump came into office, you know, and, and adopted views that traditionally were anathema to, uh, you know, to, to the Republican establishment. And, and so DeFazio played up that issue a lot and, and also just a, um, was, was more, much more of a, of a populist and uh, that was part of his persona, you know, the, more for the little guy and, and that kind of thing.
5: Oregon really is a small place not just in terms of the political world. In 1978, when my family moved to Coos Bay, I became friends with Jay Clem in my second grade class at Blossom Gulch Elementary School. Jay is Brian Clem's older brother, which meant I also became friends with Brian. We grew up going to the same schools, church, and community events. For Brian, the small town of Coos Bay provided him opportunities in politics that would lead to challenging decisions as two politicians he respected and had worked for, went at each other for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate.
3: And it it was, like I said, it was challenging, you know, for a lot of younger people who had had went to U of O, especially because they loved DeFazio. For me, as you know, because we're both from Coos Bay, he was our congressman growing up. I had interned in his office in high school, so I'm feeling a little traitorous, but I mean, I'm already Ron's campaign manager when this happens, so it's not my fault, (laughs) And so I – it was funny. I would go to these events like the uh, Multnomah County Democrats or Clackamas County Democrats, and we're competitors, Wyden versus DeFazio. But Carmen Four, who was his person, in my equivalent, like the deputy, she, she and I were good friends. So we would sit next to each other at these things, and then one or another partisans would come over and sit next to one of us and be like, where's the Wyden people? And, like, and they're like, where's the DeFazio people? And we look each well, right here. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, oh.
5: The popularity of the two Democratic candidates extended as well to the interest groups that traditionally supported them. When handling these groups, the Wyden team took the approach of just trying to keep them neutral.
3: Most out of it, I remember specifically going to the OEA Pi convention and orchestrating, you know, how to make sure that we either stayed neutral or got an endorsement. And one of my jobs was um, surrogate lineups. And so um, this former senator, beloved guy who helped invent the modern Democratic Party in Oregon called, uh, named Monroe Sweetland. And I drove Monroe, who was blind at the time, down to the OEA pie convention because he was a retired NEA member. So he had credentials to go in and speak and vote. And he went in there and just blasted Peter DeFazio for voting against the assault weapons ban. And just, you know, that was the problem was you had to find contrast somewhere. But for us, because we were already better known and had, you know, a bigger war chest, ties were fine. And so we largely got ties out of everybody that I I can think of that were major, NARAL, all those kind of groups. Because Peter and Ron both had 100% lifetime voting records.
1: The big advantage that Wyden had in that race was that he came from the Portland area and he was just so more well-known. Uh, you know, Wyden was one of those members of Congress. Uh, you know, particularly in the '80s, that it was always said that you know one of the most dangerous places between in in the Capitol is between Ron Wyden and a TV camera. And <laughs> I mean, they said that same line about Chuck Schumer when he was young, and I mean, a lot of other ones. But uh, I remember one time doing a story in the mid '80s uh, about Wyden's uh, very aggressive. PR strategy. and I had a long list of the press conferences he did uh, in Portland. and the the classic thing that Wyden used to do was he would have a weekend press conference often on Sunday because he had noticed that uh, you know the 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 uh, particularly the Oregonian would just have some general assignment reporter, you know, or a reporter who covered any sort of beat that would be, on duty on Sunday, and oftentimes they were scratching around looking for something to fill up the Monday paper, and there's Ron Wyden with a press conference attacking somebody, and often would get his message pretty unfiltered through for uh, the Monday paper, and um, so he he was very good at, at getting his name out there, and, and really had a very, um, I won't say non-partisan, but, but uh, he was very good at speaking in a way that tried to relate to the, kind of the concerns of average people, and staying away from drawing really sharp partisan wedges. You know, it was a, it was a different time in politics. I remember one time he went on one of the uh, kind of the afternoon talk shows. I can't remember if it was Oprah or Phil Donahue or something like that to. Talk about—I I think it was cosmetic surgery—and you know how people were sometimes getting um, scammed by those, you know, and, and issues like that that were kind of attention-getting, but not the the typical partisan uh, divides that you often often saw. So I think, in that sense, he came into the race with some big advantages.
3: You know, and they had they had a couple policy differences that you could hone in on, like some free trade agreements maybe, or the Brady Bill. But for the most part, they were similar, just different personalities and different styles. And so, you know, I remember one Willamette Week article where it was like, what's your favorite beer? And Peter had some obscure, like, you know, porter from some homegrown brew thing. And Ron was like, well, I don't drink, but it's the you know, I support the beer and wine industries and I'm thinking, oh no, I wish he drank for this purpose because it sounds more, you know, normal Oregonian to know the, you know, Widmer or whatever it was at the time. And, but, you know, Ron is who he is and he's now been the U.S. Senator for 25 years. And so you don't have to be a, you know, a Dodge Dart driving drinker, it looks like to prevail. But I I think Peter is, uh, you know, done a wonderful job in the House and now is chair of transportation. And so, you know, I don't know that he ever really wants to be a US senator, but at that time, they both did.
5: A pop quiz from Portland TV station KOIN provided one of the most memorable events of the primary. For Ron Wyden and his campaign, it would become an incident that would haunt him all the way through the general election.
0: The other thing that happened in, in, towards the very end of that primary was Coin TV did a... Uh, a quiz of all the major candidates in both parties, asking them what was the price of milk, the price of eggs, and could you find Bosnia on a, on a map? Because at the time, the Balkans, you know, there was a lot of uh, strife in the Balkans and things. Um, and everybody did pretty well on the test. Um, it, was a, it was a pop quiz that they did all at the same time with all the candidates, uh, with the exception of Wyden. Um, and Wyden couldn't find Bosnia on the map. My recollection is maybe he didn't even quite get the numbers right on milk and eggs and mil- and bread and those sorts of things. I thought I saw something where
1: you know at least supporters of Defazio were making fun of Wyden, Wyden's uh, failure in that uh, quiz that coin You've run across that, right? And that was, I think, excruciatingly embarrassing to Wyden Uh, you know, and the whole thing where he just basically kind of froze and couldn't give answers to, to anything. Or I think at a certain point in that pop quiz, he just decided, I'm not going to try any of this at all.
3: Well, I was driving him the next day to some meeting and he was clearly worried about it, but I hadn't seen it. So I didn't know what he was talking about. And he was kind of asking me, do you think it's going to be a big problem? And I'm sort of downplaying it because I didn't want him, A, nervous for the thing we were about to go to. And B, I I didn't think it would be that big of a deal because we didn't know how they were going to portray it. So now that I'm older, I totally get it. If I don't have my my reading glasses, I cannot see something that would be right here. And so they edited it carefully. But the problem was he didn't have his, his glasses. So everything was blurry. So they're saying, find Bosnia on the globe. But until you have that eyesight issue, you're thinking, well, why can't he just find it? I mean, you know roughly where it's at. Just look. He couldn't read it. And so he's looking at it. He's like, eh, you know, holding it out, pulling it in. And they just edit it to like, OK, there's troops at war and he doesn't even know where it is. And I think what was so hard for him is he is a super smart guy. Like they call, used to call him Jack congressman, super wonky detail oriented so for the Indian insinuation to be that he's kind of clueless and not really that you know knowledgeable like that hurt because it's so far the opposite of anything he's a total nerd and so you know but the way it was portrayed just totally you know out of touch can't find bosnia and then there were some other questions like you know how much is a a gallon of milk how much is a loaf of bread but peter then ran with the where's bosnia so they had t-shirts that are you know, stuff that said, where's Bosnia, Ron? Like, <laughs> And we got some facts on Halloween reminding that Ron had once run over a dog when he was Wayne Morse's driver 20 years ago and rest in peace. And it was like an anonymous fact. So they were like, they were psychologically in our head. They were in our head. Then half of them came to work for us like two weeks later, but still it was, it was something else.
1: Looking back on it, probably most, uh, the the average person couldn't either. So (laughs) there is that, Um, but uh, although maybe it would be hard to find on a map because uh, it hadn't been established as a country very long by that point. And it it
0: fed into a a narrative that helped DeFazio. Um, DeFazio more of a man of the people, Wyden more a man of Washington. Um, It wasn't enough to help uh, DeFazio win, but I think it, it really threw Wyden off base for uh, probably ten days to two weeks in the campaign.
1: And DeFazio did. The guy is quick-witted, and I think I I did see in one of my stories that he had uh, gotten five out of seven correctly. So he did better than any of the other candidates. And I don't know that voters ended in the end paid that much attention to.
2: Um, and that led on to the general election. We, you know, did some plays on that in the general election as well. But uh, very interestingly enough, Wyden didn't know the price of, you know, milk, gasoline, the kind of things that real people need to know.
3: And they would use, I think, pictures of Defazio hitting him for it, saying, "Where's Bosnia?" Rather than Gordon saying it, they would use Defazio doing it. If I remember right,
5: with ballots being mailed out days ahead of the early December election day the campaigns began figuring out what that meant for them. For voters, it meant a Thanksgiving day of turkey, pumpkin pie, and politics.
4: Thanksgiving, you know, people are very actively campaigning. Ballots are already out, talking about it over, the, over Thanksgiving, turkey. Um, and uh, and then, of course, the, the final election day itself in, in, in December.
0: Other than, you know, we knew... The ballots were gonna land earlier, so we started advertising sooner. Again, it gave Gordon an advantage because he had more money than the other candidates. Um, And uh, it wasn't so much that. What was interesting was that this campaign was occurring during Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so you kinda had to calibrate your activities and your advertising um, around that time. Well, that was the general election. Um, but in the primary, it was more just about, uh, having the, the resources to, uh, to start your advertising sooner.
4: You know, it was already changing the dynamics and the rhythms of campaigning anyway, but in this case, it's kind of, you know, all in and suddenly you realize we're not encouraging people to get out to vote. GOTV, get out to vote, got to go to the polls. You're now kind of more encouraging people to simply take the ballot that's on their kitchen or dining room table or magnetized to their refrigerator, just fill it out. And Oregon law did then and still does allow people, if they choose, and we don't encourage it, and I don't think very many people choose, but they can choose to give it to anyone who who, who offers to take it back to a to a polling uh, to a drop site or an election office on their on their behalf.
5: On the Democratic side, the popularity of both candidates meant the campaigns had to be careful about attacking each other. There would be no time for bandaging wounds and rebuilding support with a general election kicking off right away. The nature of vote-by-mail may have also helped prevent any last-second smears.
3: If you could have ignored him and just won, that would have been great. But the problem was he was getting momentum because he was kind of this, you know, this rebel cause and and after newt gingrich had just won congress the year before people were like looking for something to grab onto so we started to feel it slipping a little bit and i don't think we ever saw in polling that we were within the margin of error but he was making up headway without having any money or any resources he was making headway off of those dodge dart commercials (laughs) and so we're like i think we're gonna have to say something about him and um, and so it, it – it, but you're right. You, you don't want to pretend this is your enemy because A, he wasn't and B, like literally that was the other dynamic. The general election was like six weeks after that primary. Usually there's this huge gap where everybody chills out for a few months and then you gear up for the general. No, you had to start literally the next day. So if you ruined all your volunteers and alienated all your donors from the DeFazio world, the next day you're like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean any of that. Can you come back? So I think we both tried to keep it as civil as we could, but both try and win.
4: I always thought that it, it made it a lot harder to do that last minute weekend before negative hit that just brutalizes your opponent and your opponent doesn't have a chance to really respond and rebut it in time. Even if it's totally spurious and false and and vicious, if you want to do one of those attacks, uh, you know, unearth the you know the secret memo about uh, them urging one world under communism domination, or you know the the videotape that purportedly shows them taking a bribe. You now have to do it a week or two ahead of time, because otherwise people, you know, a lot of people will have voted. And that week or two ahead of time means you have a chance to rebut it, chance to marshal um, editorial boards and newspapers to label it for what it is if it is a scurrilous and uh, a phony attack.
5: It was just before ballots went out that the national press woke up and started paying attention. Since this was the first all-vote-by-mail federal election in the United States, most press on the national level didn't know what to make of it. Supporters like Phil Kiesling had to spell it out for them. He also realized that if it didn't go smoothly, he would take the blame.
4: And, you know, as as November goes into December and this race is becoming more and more heated, uh, the national press is paying attention and wondering what the hell is this system? What do you mean you don't have polling places? What do you mean you're mailing everyone their ballot? Don't you have lots of people who aren't going to vote and you have all those ballots and aren't you afraid that people are going to steal them out of trash cans and Dumpsters behind apartment buildings and, you know, turn these ballots in. We said, look, we've done this for, for nearly 20 years. We check every signature. You check every signature? Well, isn't that really time consuming? Don't you have to hire a lot of people? Yeah. But, you know, we're actually saving a lot of money because we're not having to hire thousands of poll workers to sit there and watch you sign in for your ballot. Um, we're just checking it against your voter registration card. So all of this ignorance and confusion and and speculation about uh, what this would mean. Um, uh, suddenly the national press is is looking at it, and um, and we're we're under the spotlight, um, even the Klieg lights, uh, because if anything goes wrong, huh? I'm running for re-election in 1996. <laughs> I could well have a disaster on my hands, and, well, it was a short but <laughs> but uh, fun uh, time as a Secretary of State, but all things must pass.
5: In the end, the races weren't really that close. I mean, the big overall surprise
1: of that primary was that Norman Paulus just turned out not to be a factor at all. I mean, it, it really was just a romp for, for Gordon Smith.
0: Well, I don't recall the exact margin, but it was... Gordon beat Norma and Jack Roberts and the other two or three candidates pretty handily. Um, There was, I think, one televised debate, maybe two. I remember one in Eugene. Um, Jack is a very, Jack Roberts is a very good debater. He helped himself in the debates. Um, Norma, I don't think, helped herself much in the debates. She was really kind of running, looking backwards on her record almost in a sort of, hey, I've earned this, this is my time. Um, And Gordon was much more forward-looking in terms of changing Congress and changing the country. Um, So it wasn't wasn't particularly close at the end of the day.
1: And Jack Roberts was even less of a factor, as it turned out, in that race. You know, he perhaps thought he was more well-known than he really was. You know, it's funny, we treated him as, in terms of coverage, is equal to the other candidates. We did a big profile of him. But
5: uh, he just went really nowhere. Gordon Smith ran away with the election, garnering 63% of the vote to Norma Paulus's mere 25%. Jack Roberts, a distant third at 7%. The Democratic race was a bit closer, but the Wyden team wasn't worried.
3: It wasn't that close. I, I think it was 10 points, something like that. Yeah, yeah, there was some breathing room. We weren't, it was not like the general when we were sweating it on election night. You know, I think we knew we were gonna win.
5: Ron Wyden beat Peter DeFazio 49% to 43% and set up the general election matchup. Ron Wyden, the longtime member of Congress from Portland versus Gordon Smith, the frozen vegetable magnet from Pendleton. Coming up on Revisit the Moment, a general election like no other stretches over the holidays. Santa Claus gets pulled into the mix. One candidate swears off negative ads against the advice of his campaign. And the campaigns sprint to spread their message and get ballots back as historic winds and rains pound Oregon. Are they going to get angry because
1: here are their favorite Christmas shows, you know? Is the, <laughs> the Peanuts special going to be polluted by, uh, you know, these slashing political ads?
3: Me in the passenger seat, pilot in his seat, and two seats that faced each other in the back. And we have this this reporter from back east and she's covering the day, you know, and, and covering Ron's race. And it's getting scary. The plane is moving up and down, like it felt like 12 to 20 feet at a, at a, at a wind burst.
0: I think, I know our pollster thought we were gonna win and told us that. Um, And as I've heard over the years, um, I think Wyden, they were were thinking they might lose the race.
5: Revisit the Moment is produced by me, Kevin Curry. Audio production and design is by Matt Tibbs. Our research assistant is Elijah O'Brien. We record at Linfield University in the studios of the Linfield Podcast Network. Remember to subscribe to Revisit the Moment so you don't miss out on any episodes. And if you enjoyed our work, give us a rating and a review.